Hello and welcome to the Medical Republic podcast. My name is Felicity Nelson and today we're speaking with Gid Myrovitz-Katz, a uh, epidemiologist and health blogger who recently wrote a story in The Guardian which uh, we thought was quite interesting. Gid, welcome to the show. It's good to be back. So this piece that you've written is, is quite a depressing one. It's about COVID-19 and how death is not the only outcome that we should be scared about. Uh, do you want to tell us what was this, this story that you wrote about? Yeah, so, I mean, generally speaking, I was responding to a very common point that's being raised by a lot of people across the world and particularly in Australia, which is that... Um, they say, you know, there's a 1% death rate from COVID-19, roughly, I mean, slightly under one, but anyway, 1%. But that means that 99% of people are going to be entirely okay if they catch the disease. And I think that that's a very broad misconception that, that the outcomes are binary, that either you die or you're fine. Um, and I, I mean, this is something that a lot of doctors know anyway. Because doctors realize that, that the two outcomes aren't just death and nothing else. Uh, death, death or being completely fine. But I think particularly for the general public, um, a lot of people are unaware of the risks of catching such a bad infection, not just to your short-term health, but also potentially to your long-term health as well. So what are some of those risks and what's some of the data that's coming out now that we weren't uh, aware of before a lot, large number of people started to get COVID-19? So part of the problem is that it's very difficult to know what the long-term risks are. And I, I kind of like to classify the studies that have been done into three uh, subsets. The first are studies that look at what happened with SARS and MERS and what people experienced in terms of long-term outcomes from those diseases. Um, the next are um, studies looking at short-term issues that usually herald long-term problems. So, for example, looking at in-hospital patients who developed acute kidney injuries and then extrapolating to whether that would um, cause long-term chronic disease. And then finally, there are emerging studies or very small emerging pieces of research looking at actual long-term data on COVID-19. But obviously the problem there is because the disease has only been around for a few months, we don't have like a 12-month data on people with the, who've caught COVID. All we can say is, you know, this is how many people who after a certain amount of time were still experiencing X symptom or had X problem. And so right now what we've got is uh, a lot of people around the world are catching this disease. A subset of those are going to hospital. Of those patients who, who are in hospital with COVID-19 um, who are fortunate enough to survive, what do we know about where they're at now? Are they still experiencing symptoms? What kinds of symptoms are they experiencing? So there are a few studies that have been done looking at specific issues. For example, I talked, I mentioned acute kidney injury. That's one thing that about a third of people who were hospitalized with COVID-19 in one study um, developed an acute kidney injury while they were hospitalized. Um, and on follow-up, I think it was about a month follow-up for one of these studies uh, for a subset of those patients. Um, some had resolved, but not all. Um, and the proportion I think was about it was about half half, but I, I'd have to. That that's that's one potential issue. Um, there's also the uh, changes that are that you can see in people's lungs on CT, um, and again, based on hospital discharge, you, a number of studies have found that people still have um, problems with their lungs based on CT scans, and then even a month later, you still get a proportion of people who who have these issues. Um, 
And then on the other hand, you've got these fairly long-term studies that are looking at people who, uh, you know, two to three months on. And I, I guess it's hard to answer your question about what proportion of people um, will experience these long-term outcomes because most of the research doesn't take a group of people and follow them longitudinally, take a group of people who are infected with COVID-19 and follow them longitudinally. What, we us- what we're doing at the moment is, is just kind of saying, oh, well, this group of people are experiencing these symptoms um, and surveying just the group of people who are experiencing the symptoms. And I think that's kind of a natural consequence of having uh, such a messy um, and problematic, you know, pandemic. But so I think we can say with some confidence that there are short-term and potentially long-term damage to a number of organ systems. And then you've also got studies identifying potential neuropsychiatric consequences. So there was a study in England that found that um, of people infected with COVID, a very small proportion developed delirium and other um, associated psychiatric issues, which potentially could be very long-lasting. Um, there's the the long COVID. Um, I think it's I can't remember if it's called the long COVID study or if that's just the colloquial name. But looking at people who are suffering very long-term fatigue um, and fatigue, headaches, and potentially other uh, seemingly relatively minor symptoms, but for a very long period of time. Um, And then there are worries about COVID-19 also causing long-term damage to to other organ systems. But thus far, I'm not aware of any evidence about that. Hmm. Yeah, so what we're seeing is is patients who've had COVID-19, been admitted to hospital, and then several months later, some proportion of them are still experiencing quite significant symptoms from that disease. And Mm. how does that compare to other infections that we know about? I I saw in your story you talked about measles and um, polio as two examples. I mean, part of the problem is it's very, very variable. So like polio, one example, um, is, you know, 70 to 80% of people are fully asymptomatic and never experience any complications at all. Um, But then uh, a proportion of people, even those who don't develop symptoms, can develop, you know, these lifelong complications. Um, you know, paralysis and things like that. Measles, similarly, uh, you know, fairly nasty disease. Um, And a relatively small proportion of people, but still quite high, can develop lifelong disability, such as, you know, blindness and deafness from measles. And also it can can kill uh, some people. And those proportions do vary. I think it, it changes a bit in terms of the care that people receive. Um, but I, in terms of lifelong disability, it's something like um, 1% or around that for measles. The problem with COVID, I think, is that we still don't have a really good handle on the very mild or asymptomatic cases. And that's what makes calculating these proportions hard. So you can say, for example, that about a third of people who go into hospital will experience an acute kidney injury. And then you can say that of those people who about half will have resolved after a month or two. But so, you know, maybe 15% of people will go on to develop some sort of long-term damage to their kidneys. But the problem is that people who are hospitalized don't aren't representative of everyone who catches the, the uh, disease. So then what proportion of asymptomatic people... Uh, or rather, what proportion of all of the people who catch COVID are hospitalized? 
that's a hard question to answer. And there are a lot of different answers to the question. I mean, we looked at this for our systematic review and meta-analysis on infection fatality rates in terms of the, the true proportion of people who die from COVID-19. Um, but no one has yet done that for hospitalization and for chronic complications. And um, I am actually involved at the moment in a project uh, with a few, um, a few infectious disease specialists from the US, Australia, and England at the moment. Uh, and we're going to try and do a similar thing, but it is a much harder question to answer, interestingly, than deaths, because deaths are recorded quite nicely. We don't necessarily record hospitalizations uh, and chronic complications as nicely or as easily across different places. Mm, for sure. And what's the point of looking at this question of the effects of COVID-19 outside of, you know, that binary you described of being fine and dying? Um, what's the point of calculating the overall effect um, as we think about how we respond to this pandemic? Uh, I, I think the, the main reason is fairly obvious. If you don't know what proportion of people are going to be harmed long term, aside from death, you can't prepare public services and you can't really understand the disease and its impacts. So, for example, if we do, if, if a certain proportion of people lose their sense of smell, which is a commonly reported side effect, if some people lose that permanently, that has very significant implications on the management for the disease. Uh, we may need to develop services to help people who've lost their sense of smell. Um, it's maybe not as disabling as uh, losing other senses, but it's still uh, quite a significant impact on people's lives. So not only do we need to kind of identify um, those people, we also need to know exactly what proportion of those people, uh, what proportion of people will develop this long-term complication. Because if COVID-19 does infect a large volume of people, we would need to know how many of them we, we need to help in the future. It's, it's, so it's a, a public health um, issue primarily. Mm. But then I also think it's important to understand for, for the general public to understand that the disease is not just a binary choice between death and life. And that as is true of basically every disease out there, there are a range of um, disabling complications or a range of issues that can affect you, some of which are death, but some of which are less severe than death and yet still very uh, problematic. Yeah, for sure. So if we just let this pandemic rip through Australia, it would have a much more significant and damaging effect than you might think, you know, if you were just thinking about that 1% of people who die from the disease, it's actually quite, uh, the burden on people's health is quite a lot higher than you might think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, people have talked about herd immunity as a brutal calculus because you're saying, well, we're going to let X number of people die so that the rest of us can live normally. But I think that that also misses part of the point, which is that um, of the people who catch the disease who don't die, some will never have the same quality of life again. And, you know, often we calculate these things in what's known as quality adjusted life years. So, um, you know, if, if a disease impacts your quality of life, even if it doesn't kill you, it may reduce, it reduces your, your quality value for the remaining, for the remaining uh, years of your life. So you live at, um, a, your quality of life is reduced and therefore kind of your, your life years go down. And, that's kind of the question we're asking. It's 
taking deaths out of the equation for the people who survive um what is the long-term impact on quality of life and the research that's coming out uh, from Australia is it's very sort of itty bitty little study groups, um, mostly because we don't have that many patients, fortunately, who have COVID-19 um, at the moment. But there was one study uh, that jumped out at me, the St. Vincent's ADAPT study, uh, which looked at 94 patients who did have COVID-19. Some of them had uh, mild cases of it. Some of them were hospitalized. Um, and they actually followed them up after a couple of months to see what sorts of symptoms they were still experiencing. Um, and yeah, it was, did you read this study, Gid? Yeah, so I did, I did see the study and also the piece published in The Guardian. And I think that it kind of shows you some of the problems with COVID-19. Um, so firstly, you have the group of people who are hospitalized. Uh, and in the ADAPT study, about 80% of those were still experiencing symptoms three months later. Now, that's not entirely surprising because people who are hospitalized um, often have interventions that themselves carry a long-term risk. So for example, if you go on mechanical ventilation, um, it can cause damage to your kidneys, to your lungs, to other organ system in your body. So it's not that surprising that people who are mechanically ventilated would then still be experiencing symptoms months later. Um, the fact that 80% of them were experiencing symptoms is a bit worrying uh, because that that's higher than the proportions you see in, in published research on even, even on patients who had long-term mechanical ventilation. So that might be indicative of a problem. Obviously, because it's a small sample size, you can't necessarily draw that sort of conclusion. Mm -hmm. It's just suggestive evidence. But on top of that, a third of the people including those who were not hospitalized, were still experiencing symptoms. And that's quite worrying because if people who have otherwise mild infections uh, still have symptoms long-term, particularly kind of uh, fatigue, which was a common, commonly reported symptom in this study, um, it could have quite problematic societal impacts. Um, and it, it kind of ties into chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, so there is a theory that, that chronic fatigue is caused by viral infections anyway, that that triggers this kind of uh, chronic fatigue in the body um, for whatever reason, and that there are dozens of proposed mechanisms for this. Uh, if COVID-19 is going does trigger chronic fatigue in a large proportion of people, or even a relatively small proportion of people, but infects the whole of society, then those numbers start to add up and it starts to get really worrying across the uh, population. Yeah, and this is what we're hearing anecdotally as well. P people who've recovered from COVID nineteen, who were young and healthy and expected to be, you know, back in the workforce and, you know, going out and exercising, you know, they're still feeling this persistent shortness of breath and chest discomfort, fatigue, as you mentioned. Um, you know, they haven't got their sense of smell back. Um, things, these things that sort of linger and just, you know, uh, disabling uh, really. And I think a lot of people who've you know, been tweeting about this and their personal experience have said that it's it's just not what they expected. It's not like, you know, getting some a cold. It's it's quite a lot worse than that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the challenge is because of the small sample sizes, and the small sample sizes in many ways are simply a reflection of um, the chaos that this pandemic has thrown us into. I mean, research on long-term outcomes is fascinating, but not of the highest priority when you're trying to save lives. So a lot of the research has focused on tr interventional treatments. But um, given the small sample sizes, it's very hard to know what proportion of people who are infected will go on to develop these complications. But if it is 30% of people who experience symptoms for three months or more, 
And that is a very substantial um, burden on the population because even if, um, you know, even if it's not a really significant issue, even if it's a little bit of shortness of breath that, that is mild or headaches uh, or fatigue, um, the fact if a large proportion of the whole population is experiencing that, um, even a minor issue becomes a massive cost to society. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's just frightening to think while, while we're seeing the numbers climbing in Melbourne, um, you know, what we might have in store if we don't manage to get the lid on this thing. Um, so, yeah, it's a little <laughs> bit scary. And I saw that your the piece you wrote for The Guardian ended on a, on a pretty depressing note. <laughs> yes. Kid wrote, I wish I could end with a more uplifting message, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> pretty much. I think being an epidemiologist in 2020 is all about wishing that everything was great, but knowing that it probably isn't. Um, yeah, but to end this podcast on less of a depressing note, I, thought <laughs> I, I just mentioned a feature that I wrote this week that uh, made me laugh, and I um, I know you read this one, did. It's about uh, some of the stranger COVID-19 responses around the world. So I've gone through and listed nine of them, and I thought maybe I'd share a few of them so that you don't you know, feel too depressed after listening to this podcast. <laughs> so my favorite one was number one on the list. It's the uh, the one sex buddy policy from the Netherlands. Um, so basically what they did, <laughs> I found out about this from a friend of mine who lives in, in Holland. Um, what the government did is they put out some advice saying that uh, singles who are looking to hook up during the pandemic should stick to one sex buddy at a time. <laughs> um, and this was a government affiliated website putting this advice out. Um, and my favorite thing about it was that the word for sex buddy in Dutch is, okay, I cannot pronounce it, but it's like knuffel mate, which basically means someone to cuddle with. Knuffel <laughs> is like the best word I think I've ever heard. Um, and then they quickly reversed this advice and they took those words off their website because they thought it would be misinterpreted as an encouragement to find a sex buddy. I just think this is so hilarious. Like what a great um, response to COVID. <laughs> It feels like the quintessential government response, doesn't it? Like, ah, oh, let, let's put out some well-meaning advice, but oh no, people might misinterpret this. <laughs> and I know that the uh, the New York City Department of Health did a similar thing um, where they, they had a document they put out with some very explicit advice on how to have safe sex during COVID, um, which included some the suggestion that people use or explore the use of glory holes, um, which is not <laughs> well, something I don't think ever... they explicitly used the word glory hole, but they did say try having sex with a physical barrier. Um... Like a wall. I mean, what else could they be referring to? <laughs> and my, my favourite was how they suggested that people wear face masks if they're having sex with people, um, because heavy breathing and panting can spread the virus further. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, it's it's... Seems like a, a delightful thing for them to suggest. Yeah, so if you'd like to read some more of these uh, hilarious responses to COVID, you can check it out on our website. It's called From Kinks to Chemical Cannons, The Nine Weirdest COVID Responses. <laughs> Love the headline. Our editor did a good job on that one. <laughs> it's pretty brilliant. Uh, also, well, thank you, Gid, for coming on the show and sharing your, your wisdom. Uh, and thanks for making time uh, during your workday. It's my pleasure. It's always fun to come on a TMR podcast. Uh, and for all our listeners out there, you can subscribe on Spotify or iTunes or check us out on our website. You've been listening to the Medical Republic podcast. I'm Felicity Nelson. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.